Uh, so glad to see you guys. It's been a little while. It's been a little while. I um, thank you guys so much for for uh, you know, giving me the privilege of taking some time off. Molly and me and all four of our kids flew to the East Coast because we're crazy. Um, but we survived. We made it. You know, trials, perseverance, all that stuff. Um, it was great. We only lost our bags on the way back. Well, on the way back, we, we landed at like 9 o'clock at night, and they had lost our car seats. So that was a challenge. <laughs> but we stayed overnight, and it was good, and we had them by 11 o'clock the next morning, so we were super blessed and got to be uh, preach at my old church and see some old friends and was so thankful to come back to this wonderful place. So really glad to be with you guys this morning again. Uh, just a couple of quick updates. Um, really exciting news. If you remember in the beginning of the summer, if you were around, we talked about some updates we've done. We've, we've redone all the carpet in the sanctuary. We've repainted a bunch of stuff. Or we're doing some stuff in the lobby that's still ongoing. We have done a ton of work over in the kids' area, making that Club 47 room a lot better, taking down a few things and sprucing it up, and that's all done. But on Monday, the big thing is arriving. The playground is arriving on Monday. Yes, we're so excited about that. Um, you know, I'm going to single-handedly offload it or something. I don't know. I don't know how that's going to work. I, I'm sure someone will tell me. Um, but it's been awesome. We're so excited about this playground on Monday. And if you're the sort of person who just has delusions of grandeur and you said, you know what I'd like to do on my bucket list is just single-handedly set up a playground. I have no idea what I'm doing. Then I need you. I would love your assistance because I too have had this dream that I can set up a commercial playground. I really do believe I'm competent enough to do it. Probably not, but we'll find out together. So um, would you guys, if you want to help out with that, just let me know. I'm going to get a group of men, women, anyone who wants to come in, uh, probably next Saturday, but we can talk about a time. If you're sort of interested, let me know. And then like, if we had, I don't know, six, eight guys, totally guessing here. Again, this, is, this could be just really bad. Um, but I think we could put it together, uh, six or eight men or women, um, and get it all, all set up. I have instructions. There is that. <laughs> be thankful for that. Um, <laughs> I didn't say I was going to read them. Uh, so, so we're going to do that, and it's so, it's so cool. And, you know, you got, we're doing this because um, this church is so generous. I was literally having lunch with a pastor the other day, and I was just bragging about how generous you guys are. So thank you so much. Like, it's, it's really only been possible for us to be able to take all the steps we've done. You know, last year we put a new roof on that other building because it had a hole in it, <laughs> you know one of those things. Uh, roofs don't work well with holes. Um, and we, we've been able to do a lot of improvements around here and invest in this place and really come out of COVID stronger because of your generosity. So thank you for that. We've already raised, we had a goal of raising $25,000 towards the playground and all these other updates we've done. We've raised $14,500 towards that. Um, you know, a little bit left and uh, I'm trusting the Lord with it. So it's great. And love you guys. I appreciate you. Uh, we're doing things and God is moving and I'm excited for this next season that we're heading into. Um, also excited to be back in the book of Acts this morning. Um, this is going to be like our last Sunday in Acts for a little while. I'm going to pause this series through Acts. Um, Ryan talked a little bit last week in, in uh, the message that he gave, which was great. And Sean, your message was great. Thank you guys so much for stepping in, uh, teaching. Um, talked a little bit about kind of, we're going to be doing a series. It's actually not going to start till October, but a series coming up here, just focusing on um, some contra controversial things. I mean, it's funny it's controversial because we're talking about um, Christian sexual ethics coming up here in October. Because it's, it's funny that it's controversial because it's not like if I told anyone in the world that Christians have historically had strong opinions, specific opinions about sexual ethics, no one would be surprised by this, right? We're kind of well known for having some views that at the present moment are somewhat controversial uh, in terms of sexual ethics. And so what we're going to do is we're just going to talk about what those are and talk about why they are. And I don't think that's that controversial, personally. <laughs> um, and I don't think we're, we're not going to put this from a political... Please, like, don't be afraid. This is not a political series. This is not like a, a series that I think will be divisive. I hope to have great unity as a result as we contemplate what God tells us in his word and as we contemplate the invitation that we have to be people who have bodies and who are told that actually there's, there's a really great way to live as embodied people in the world. It's an invitation to have a full life. And part of that is how we use our bodies in terms of <laughs> Sorry. Um, 
And, and let me just be very clear about one thing, because I grew up in the church in the 90s, and at some point in the 90s, like, pastors thought it'd be so cool to tell you how to spice up your marriage. There's no spicing up your marriage. I will not be doing that. I don't want to do that. You don't want to do that. Nobody wants that. That's not what this is, okay? So I just, just want to dispel all the fear that we have in the room. I'm going to really look forward to this, and I, and I hope, you, hope you will too. So that's going to be in October, but we're going to pause this in, in Acts, and then in the next couple weeks, I don't know. I think I'm going to teach on prayer. I have to pray about it. But I'm excited about it. So anyways, enough of me talking. Let's get into the word. Uh, in Acts, we're in Acts chapter 17, picking up in verse 16, okay? Um, we're back in Acts, and this morning we are um, in a passage that I'm really excited about. It's kind of the thing that I was like, okay, I want to get to Acts, the end of Acts 17, and then, then we'll stop, because it's a passage that's really exciting. I'm excited because um, it's focusing on Paul's experience, right, because Acts has been, at least for the last couple of chapters, focusing on this person, Paul, this missionary to the Gentile world, the non-Jewish world. He's out uh, teaching the, the gospel, yes, to the Jews in, outside of Jerusalem that he's meeting, but he's also teaching it to Gentiles. And for the first time, we see the church taking root outside of Jerusalem um, and really flourishing. And Paul's going into places where the gospel, the message of Jesus' uh, <laughs> incarnation, uh, death on the cross, this forgiveness of sins and the, and the resurrection has not been before. And he's going out and he's bringing it. And today he is in the city of Athens. And I, I like this because even though these events that we see here, they happened 2,000 years ago in a, in a different place, in a different culture, I think that what we see Paul going through here as he is bringing the gospel into the city is actually very relatable to our times. Some of the cultural obstacles that he's facing are the same sorts of things that we face today if we're going to be Christians living out our faith and articulating what it means to, to follow Jesus in this culture same sort of things that Paul faced here in Acts. So what's happened up to this point is Paul has been driven uh, out of inland Greece. He's been going into Europe and trying to teach there in Thessalonica. He started a riot, and the rioters drove him to Berea, and then he was there for a little while in Berea, and then they found out he was there, and they chased him down into Athens. And he's been brought to Athens and basically dropped off by his escort, the people who escorted him down there, and just said, okay, you'll be safe here. You'll be safe down in Athens, Okay. And so that's where we pick up in Acts 17, 16. While Paul was uh, waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed when he saw that the city was full of idols. So he's arriving there. He's waiting for his traveling companions to come down and meet up with him. And he's just sitting there waiting, looking around, walking around the city. And he's greatly distressed because the city is full of idols. Just quickly, like, what are idols? I think it's important. Um, this is a common thing in, in, in ancient culture, and they are basically just carved or sculpted images to represent gods. Gods, not, not the one only god, but, like, local gods, gods that people worshipped. And in the ancient world, people would have commissioned idols and had been created by craftsmen, and, and then they would have taken those idols commissioned by craftsmen to the priests or priestesses who like represented these various gods in different places, and they would perform some rituals, and those rituals supposedly were to endow these objects, created objects with the presence of God, and then people would worship them. They would devote themselves to these idols. It was a common thing all over the world at the time, and different regions had different gods. You'd go into different parts of the Roman world, and there would be local gods, and the, and the Romans were good with it. They didn't care. They didn't really want to impose any sort of particular way of worship. They just said, whatever people want to worship, that's great. And so as Paul comes into Athens, he's struck by what he sees, like all these gods there is a city that is full of idols. And I think it's important to note why he's distressed. His distress is not like a moral distress, at least not primarily a moral distress. Um, like if you read the Old Testament prophets, they were always railing against Israel for idolatry. Idolatry was a major problem in Israel. And, and in that case, it was a huge moral issue because Israel knew better. 
Like Israel like knew God and God made it clear that like the one really important part of worshiping God as God is to not worship idols. And, and so the, the, the prophets were always going after Israel and talking to them about how, how it is a really a serious problem to worship idols, to worship false gods. It is a betrayal of him, right? So, so, so on that level, it was a moral issue, but the, the Athenians were, were not knowledgeable about God. They didn't have this, this particular revelation, at least, available to them, or they did, but it wasn't really to them, so they wouldn't didn't really adopt it. So, so Paul isn't walking around. He's not, like, looking around as mad. He's not mad that, like, the mor- it's not moral outrage that the city is full of idols. It's not that. Nor was Paul's distress coming from surprise. This was not a shock to Paul that there would be idol worship in the city of Athens. Idol worshiping is happening all over the world. And idolatry is nothing new to Paul. He's seen it in every city that he goes into. And at this point, he's traveled to so many cities all over the Roman world and in Asia, in modern-day Turkey, and now up into Greece. And he has seen idolatry before. He's confronted idolatry before. Every city in the world had local gods and would have had places to worship those gods. So Paul is not surprised. His distress is not from surprise. But Paul, as he enters Athens, he's distressed. So why is he distressed? Well, he's distressed because it was full of idols full of idols. Not just a lot of idols, as in the quantity, but idols from all over the known world. It's not just like they had some local god in Athens and they were really into this local god. What they had done, actually, was gathered up all the idols, all the gods that are worshipped, all throughout the whole Roman world, and they brought them into the city and they set up places to worship them. To the point where later on in this this passage, Paul is talking to the Athenians and he says, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect. For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. So like he's distressed because he sees that these people are religious, but to an extreme. In fact, they have secured and scoured uh, idols from all over the world. They find gods anywhere, and they gather them up together, and they've decided that they're going to worship them all. Like, you know what? Let's choose all the things. And just so that they can be sure that they have all their bases covered. And they even set up an altar to an unknown God. Just, you know, because there's probably one we missed, at least one we missed, right? So let's worship that one too, and then that one will be set, and we'll have all the gods, all the things. And for the Athenians, this is an expression of their wisdom. They think, we are super smart to gather all of these idols together and worship them. Because Rome had, had taken over the known world, right? This is the Roman Empire, but Rome had a, had a special place in its heart for the Greeks, for the Greek culture. See, uh, like 500 years prior to Rome, Alexander the Great uh, unified the Greeks and took over the known world, and they invented philosophy. It was beautiful. They, they perfected art. Uh, but now, Rome had come, taken over Greece, But Rome looked to Greece not as somebody to dominate, but as a model of what they could be. Rome didn't try to replace Greek culture. They adopted it. They celebrated it. And they looked to Athens as a very special place. And so Athens is not just any city. It is actually the cultural hub of the Roman world. And in the cultural hub of the Roman world, they express their wisdom about religion by being full of idols and worshiping all the things, accepting all of it. And for the Athenian, nothing was wiser, nothing was more sophisticated or more representative of their cultural values than their attitude towards religion. After all, what's better than one god? All the gods. So much better than one. Why settle for one thing when you can have all of them? Um, I live in an apartment, and like a lot of apartments here, I have a little closet on my balcony, right? It's a little four-by-four room. And the intention of the closet is that you're supposed to stuff all the things into the closet, right? And you don't have a garage. You have a four-by-four room, and you put everything in there. But it's, like, not really very appropriate for the Pacific Northwest, right? Four-by-four is not enough for the Pacific Northwestern lifestyle. Because here, like, we have rooms devoted to our outdoor stuff. 
right? Giant rooms, multiple rooms. We have, a, we have like, like extra rooms, extra land. People love their outdoor stuff. And so like I have, you know, trying to, trying to fit in with y'all, right? <laughs> trying, to, trying to fit in. So I've taken up a lot of hobbies. And so this closet where I'm supposed to put all my outdoor stuff, it is dangerous. You open it and it's you got to do it really slow because it might all fall out on you. And there's things in it for all seasons. There's tools. And then there's, there's like ski stuff, you know, for the skiing. And then there's paddle boards, you know, for the paddle boarding season. And then there's some bike stuff. And there's, you know, fishing stuff. And there's camping gear. It's all the stuff. That's the room where I keep all the stuff because I might need it. I might need it sometime. And for the Athenians, that's kind of how they approach religion. They stuffed their culture full of gods so that they would be ready for any occasion. And this idea, which for Athens was wisdom, for Paul it was a source of distress. Well, why? Why? Let's really talk about it. Why? Well, because um, it begs the question. It begs the question. If you believe in everything, do you really believe in anything? If you do all the things, can you really do any one thing particularly well? Can you really believe in anything if you believe in everything? And what is the nature of that belief anyway? If you're not really willing to get serious about one thing, is that really believing and in what way does that play out in your life? And I realize that's sort of a judgy question. Like if I asked that to a teenager somewhere, they'd be like, boomer. You know, I'd say, I'm a millennial. Um, <laughs> but put that, like, put that aside, and let's just ask the question for a second. Because I think that anyone who really thinks through the question would have to admit that, that you do potentially miss out on something if you try to believe everything, if you try to just be okay with everything. Why? Well, because the Athenian approach to religion, this, this way of wanting to believe everything, is essentially it's consumeristic. It, it, it relegates belief to something that serves my interests above everything else. It puts faith, belief, and God on the same level that my Costco membership is, right? I go into the place when I want things, I take them, I bring them home, and then I don't think about Costco again, unless you're Danae and Hans. You love Costco. <laughs> we all do. We're with you. We're with you. You just guys just bring it to the next level. That's all. Way to go. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't mean to. That's, I'm very rude. Um, so what's the problem with that? Well, the problem is that believing like that can never rise above a category of consumerism. It can't ever be anything except something that serves you when it suits you. See, my closet is full of stuff. It is so full of stuff, but it's all there because I never know when I might want something. Some days I kind of feel like paddleboarding, or my wife does, more importantly. Some days I, I want to ski, some days I want to snowshoe, some days I want to hike, but really, I'm not actually devoted to or very good at any of those things. I haven't given myself over to any of those things. That closet is there because I don't really want to commit to one thing. It's stuffed full of things because, ah, I don't want to be just a skier or just a snowboarder or just a whatever. Which is fine when you're talking about leisure. I don't feel bad about this. <laughs> it's fine because that is a leisure activity but I'm not sure how well it functions when you're talking about beliefs and how you think the world really operates and what you think really is important and who it is that you should serve and what is the pattern of life that you should have. I don't think that attitude can serve that. You, I don't think that you can approach truth in that way. That approach to truth will not serve you well in life, and I think Paul knew that, and that's why he's distressed because these people were unwilling to get over themselves and understand that they had to be committed to something, that that, that was a choice to so not be committed to anything actually is going to leave you only into consumerism. And in his distress, he goes into the synagogues and he goes into the marketplaces of Athens and he preaches the one thing that he knows to be true. It says in verse 18, he preaches the good news about Jesus and the resurrection, the one true thing, the thing that this whole city that was full with gods needed to hear and they needed to know the good news about Jesus and the fact that he died and rose again and that the world would never be the same as a result of that. 
Paul preaches a message to the Athenians that is something different than what they've heard. Not that we should be consumers of religious things, appeasing all the gods, but that we should be consumed in devotion to the one who has revealed himself, the true King Jesus, the one who has proved himself worthy, holy, righteous, true, the one who has proved himself to be God by dying in mercy for sin and then rising again from the dead like no one ever could or would. It is this one Jesus that he says we must be worshiping. It is this one Jesus who we must be paying attention to, listening to. And so he goes with that particular message, a message that flies in the face of this pluralistic society, this Athenian wisdom. And he is met predictably, I know it's predictable because I've been met the same way in our pluralistic society, he's met predictably with derision. We read about it. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews And with those worshiping God, as well as in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also debated with him. Some said, what is this ignorant show-off trying to say? See, Paul, he's making big claims, big truth claims, and the people who hear it are sort of bothered by what he's saying. They think he's... uh, Uh, ignorant to make arguments like this, like the ones he's making. He's a show-off, making too much of this Jesus fellow, trying to say his faith, his particular religion with his weird, you know, dress, because Paul would have probably been dressed like a traditional Jew. Uh, They're saying he's, he's ignorant. He's making too much of Jesus. He's trying to argue that somehow Jesus is more special than all the other gods, and how could he say such a thing? It's actually pretty funny. The word they use here to insult him, we have it translated at least in this, is an ignorant show-off. But if you actually make it literal, it's seed picker. This seed picker. I like that. Next time I want to insult someone, I'm going to call him a seed picker. I don't want to insult anybody. I'm not going to do that. Um, Look, what's happening here is this. Uh, he's going into a sophisticated world, a very sophisticated culture, a culture that has, is so wise. They've decided to do all the things, and he's giving a very clear message. And in the face of the pluralism that will believe anything, Paul is saying, actually, no, there's only one name under heaven in whom we must believe and put our faith in order to be saved. And all the people who hear this say, well, who could believe that? Who could possibly believe that? Only a hayseed a seed picker like this guy. And to be a person who goes into a sophisticated culture, a very intelligent culture, into a pluralistic world, a world that will believe anything and everything, and to insist that actually you should believe just this one thing will probably get you on the receiving end of insults like these. We live in a culture that, like Athens, assumes that the wise thing, the reasonable thing, is just to accept all the things equally. Like, how could anyone know what's true? How could anyone sift through all the various diverse opinions out there? How could we know? And so anyone who would argue for a particular truth will be met with this kind of scrutiny. But that's just the way it is, and I think we need to own up to it. We'll talk about why in a second here because I think it makes a difference. But first, let's just, just, be, just be frank. I like how um, Richard Bauckham, he's uh, not a hayseed, not a seed picker. He's a professor at Oxford. I like how he says uh, what, what, the approach that we need to have here in reckon, reckoning with this. He says, for, for postmodernism, that's kind of the, the culture, the sophisticated, believe-anything culture that we have right now. For postmodernism, any claim to universal truth is oppressive because it delegitimizes difference. I believe that in the end, Christians must simply contest this preference for diversity over truth. I love that simple phrase. We're just going to contest the difference, contest the preference. Culture has a preference. They believe that they're wise and sophisticated to think that all things are fine. The call of a Christian is to simply contest this preference for diversity over truth. It's not the case that uh, that diversity as such, any kind of diversity whatsoever, is a good in itself. It is not better for there to be people who live, who, whose lives are blighted by destructive illusions than for their illusions to be dispelled. Bakken makes this humble suggestion, and it's not 
that we should be belligerent. It's not that we should be a fighting people, a prideful people, or to meet the derision that's thrown at us with the same kind of zeal and arrogance, but simply to be people who contest this preference for diversity over truth, who just say, I understand that this seems wise, but I have met God. <laughs> I have read his word, spoken to me, and I found it to be worth my whole life. To do that in simple humility, because it's not better for people to be living in destructive illusions than for their illusions to be dispelled. But understand that even reading this quote, even as I read this quote, and as, you, as, I, as, I, as I'm studying these things, and I'm sure some of you can agree with me here, um, you, you read this and you think, oh, that, that seems like a bit much. <laughs> some of us may be thinking, oh, isn't that pushy? Isn't it arrogant to insist that this one way is right? I feel that way because I am a product of my culture. As you, as you know, I am an East Coast snob. I'm an East Coast snob, and the thing about snobs is that we want to feel like we're better than all people. And the way that New Yorkers, you know, my people, people whom I admire, they have such great food and culture, and they're just exciting. I, am, I really am a snob. The other day, uh, I was talking to Greg. It was really funny. We were talking about pizza. There you are. Yes, we were talking about pizza, and I was really expressing that y'all don't know what pizza is. I'm sorry. You, you don't. <laughs> this is my snobbery. And then he was like, Oh, I thought you were just joking about really being a snob. You really are a snob. No, I, I am. I am a snob. I, you don't know what pizza is. I'm sorry. I just went to the promised land. I came back. I, I had pizza four times when I was there. That's too much pizza for a two-week period. But I don't feel bad. I made the right choice. And now I have to suffer through another several years without real pizza. Oh, gosh, I'm terrible. I'm sorry. Uh, so, so, like... <laughs> I'm a product of my culture. We're getting back on my news. I'm a product of my culture. And, and, and like, I grew up, like, in, oh, here we go. Okay, here we go. Uh, my parents aren't here, so I can talk about my parents. No, they, I love them. They're probably watching online. I, I grew up, like, in Westport, Connecticut. I don't know if you know Westport, Connecticut. It is 45 minutes from Manhattan. It is, it's like the Bellevue of the East Coast, right? It's... No, if you live in Bellevue, God bless you. Wonderful. I'm glad you're here. Um, like it's, it's like an awesome place. Like it's a sophisticated place. It's a place where you have to have money and culture to be a part of. It's just, it's just one of those places. Like, and I was groomed from an early age to be part of this high level of culture, to be the East Coast snob. I was called to be, to be my parents got me a job at a senator's office out of college because I'm going to be in politics. Thank God I didn't go into politics. I would have been a terrible person. I would have just succumbed to all the temptations. I know I would have. God was merciful in getting me out of this illusion that somehow to believe all things and to do all things and to have all power and to trust myself entirely with my life was a good idea. God broke me of that, and I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful that I do not live or operate under this thought that somehow I'm so smart because I have been told my whole life I am, that I can reach the heights, and then the more I tried to reach, the more I felt empty, and the more I felt like the promise of the world was going to leave me hanging at the end, and by God's mercy, I laid hold of a better promise. But still, I'm a product of my culture, and sometimes insisting that there's one way feels like it. It's like, man, I know that there's something in me. I've been told that that can't be true, but the truth of the gospel, the particularity that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the light, and that he actually has a, a particular way to pursue your life, and it's going to lead to wholeness and satisfaction and reconciliation with God, and it's, it's a one way. It's a way of devotion to Jesus and disdevotion to other things, leaving beside behind all the other idols and all the other open options that we think is a sophisticated thing to have, to have no commitments and to be able to go anywhere because we're wealthy enough and smart enough and powerful enough. And so we hoard this stuff so that we are never told that we have to do anything. But to really just sit with Jesus and to just say, Lord, I just give you my whole life. And if my life ends up being just a waste in the eyes of the world, it's probably better. It's so much better to believe in a particular thing. And yet, it's an ongoing struggle, right? 
It's an ongoing struggle to be sorts of people who just say, no, Jesus is the one to whom I can give all my life consistently every day when it hurts and when it feels like it's not going to work out. It's a hard thing. It's a hard thing to go around people who really believe that what's sophisticated and wise is to believe all the things and to just say, may I just suggest, may I just suggest gently, kindly, in grace, in kindness, that that's not going to lead where you think it's going to lead. I'm a product of my culture. I'm an East Coast snob, and so I'm always dealing with this thing. And I think a lot of us, like, because I was shaped by New York City, and a lot of you guys, I mean, Seattle is a very interesting place. When I grew up, I would visit um, the, the Puget Sound a lot. My grandma lived here, spent a lot of time. And it was like not like, it's not what it was just today, right? Seattle has become the tech hub you know, San Francisco's fine, but you know, it's just a major place and a major and important place in the world, right? And a lot of us are, you know, working in companies that are making big impacts all over the world, shaping culture. And like Seattle is shaping you in some way, even if you live out in the valley. And you say, well, I live in the valley because I don't want to live in Seattle. And that's fine. That's fine. I live in the valley too. It's a good place to be, right? But, but Seattle, like, like, like this kind of culture, this kind of pluralistic attitude is shaping us in ways that we really need to take account of. We really need to confront with the gospel. And we really need to go back to over and over again like the truth that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the light. And get more comfortable with speaking that. And not to be combative about it. Not to be combative about it. Because I get, I get there's one thing, like you look at the world and all its craziness and we want to be like, oh, these people are so stupid. But they're just actually doing what makes sense to them. And we just need to have compassion and go around proclaiming the truth, knowing and remembering what we were before we heard it. And how had we not been confronted with the person Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, who we would be and what we would be like. We'd be doing all the same things. And then we have to take care to understand in our lives what we're devoted to and what it's like to be a follower of Jesus. You know, we've got these signs out. We want to be everyday disciples. And that's my prayer for us as a church, that we would be everyday disciples. Nothing more, nothing less. Never people in charge, never wise people, but people who are everyday just saying, Jesus, I look to you as the authority in my life. I follow you as a disciple, student, master. I'm the lower in this relationship. And it's just humbly doing that, I submit my life to Christ, and I think it's going to lead to better things, and we just invite people to come along with us on that journey. Not in pride, not in arrogance. Back into my notes here. <laughs> right, let's go back into the passage. He says, others replied, he seems to be a teacher of foreign deities because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus and said, may we learn about this new teaching that you're presenting? Because what you say sounds strange to us, and we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians, I love this, now the, all, all the Athenians and the foreigners residing there spent their time doing nothing else but telling or hearing something new. What a life. <laughs> kind of reminds me of my life sometime. As we go out, and as we're people who navigate into a pluralistic society, a society that will believe anything, and we come as people who are just going to believe one thing, going to be devoted to Jesus, we won't actually only find derision there, but we certainly will. We will also actually find people who are curious about what we have to say, who are saying, well, I don't know, maybe that could be true. There's people who might open up doors for us to explain more of what we have to say, and we need to be prepared to be able to do that, to talk about this person, Jesus, right? Some of those people who heard Paul came and they invited him to the Areopagus, this place where there was just like debating and learning going on, and there would be speakers and discussion, a place where the philosophers would talk, and they wanted to know what he had to say because what you say sounds strange to us and we want to know what these things mean. There are, just as much as there are people who are so caught up in the world of just believe anything, do anything, there are also people in that world who know that something doesn't sit well with this vision of life to believe everything. 
And we, evangelistically, are wise to be aware that people have something within them, some sense that this world actually is not very satisfying. And when we find people who have those questions, we should be willing to sit down and make time. Paul makes the time. He goes, and he goes in probably to an awkward situation where he has to defend his faith, but it's good, and it ends up being fruitful, and we can be prepared to do the same. Ooh, let's, let's do a plug. Um, on, I think that the last week of September, I'm going to do a theology course. I'm going to start a theology course. It's going to be after church on Sundays. It's like the Bible course we did through Western Seminary. Like we had seminary professors on video. You like watch the videos during the week and then we come and discuss it. We're going to do the same thing starting uh, late September. Great way to be able to defend your faith is to understand the, the core Christian theological commitments. So just putting that little bug in your ear, think about that if that's something you're interested in. Uh, I'll talk about that more next week. Okay, so we need to be ready and we need to be people who are prepared. So let's, let's keep going on to see what happens when he goes to the Areopagus. Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect. For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. For one man, he has made, uh, from one man he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and boundaries of where they live. He did this so that they might seek God, and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he's not far from each of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Since then, we are God's offspring. We shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art and imagination. So Paul gives a defense of his truth, of this gospel that he's proclaiming. He explains to them that their religiousness their appetite for God and the divine is actually preparing them for something. This unknown God, the God to cover the bases that they're worshiping, actually is God who is now making himself known through Paul and throughout all the world. He is Lord of heaven and earth. He's the one true God. He created everything that exists in all people. He created all people from one man and spread them throughout all the earth in the hopes that they might seek after him. Other translations say that they might grope after him like a blind person can't see, but maybe I would lay hold of something good. Because shockingly, he says, God is near to all people. That's the crazy thing is we think, oh man, well, God is distant and, and, and these, these, uh, these Romans, these Athenians, they create all these idols to, to get to God. But what Paul is saying is actually, no, God is the revealing God. He's the near God. He's the God who lives, who created all things and all of creation actually points us to him. He is near. And he's saying, he's actually saying, you guys actually have that sense you have that sense that there's something divine, something to be sought after. He said, even your Greek poets have said, we are his offspring. You have a sense that to be a person is to have like a divine calling, a, 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 a compulsion to know God. You recognize that. And what Paul is telling them is, yes, you are God's children, or you have all the potential to become and be adopted back into God's family despite sin. He's saying, God is near. He's come. And now you've like, you've like made these gold images and stone images. He says, that's not where the image of the divine is. He's pointing them to what the image of, of the divine is, and it's Jesus himself. He goes on, he says, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man, that is Jesus, he is appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. 
the good news for the Athenians, right? They've been ignorant. They've, they've, they've been distant from God. They've been worshiping stone and gold and things that really aren't fully the image of, of God. The good news is that God has accommodated their ignorance. He gets that you chose a way of understanding the world that involves believing in all things. But he says, don't mistake this. Understand this thing right now. Now God is making himself very clear. He's come in the flesh. Jesus, God himself, reconciling the world to him. He's calling people everywhere, all people, far-off people, people who think they know about God, to come before him to repent and to turn to God, to know God, to know Jesus, to have a relationship with him. And I want us to think about that word repentance for a second because it's an important word. Obviously, like, it's the action step that Paul gets to with the Athenians. It's the thing they need to do is repent. What does that mean? What does it mean to repent? I think many of us uh, have fuzzy ideas about that. We have fuzzy ideas about what repentance looks like. The reason that it's, it's a little fuzzy is because repentance is not just um, a, a simple thing. It's, it's not primarily, and, and please bear with me on this, if, you, if, you're, if you're a little concerned, just let me, let me work this idea out. It's not primarily a moral work. Like, he's not going to the Athenians, right, and saying, you need to repent, and by that I mean you need to get on with, board with a Christian sexual ethic, or you need to get on board with uh, you know, tithing, or going to church. you got to get to church. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying, you guys need to take some moral steps to become good people. That doesn't make any sense in the context of what he was saying. What, what he's saying is that you need to repent. Repent is, uh, the Greek word here is metanoiate, and it means to, I think I have a definition up here, right? Uh, to reconsider is, is primarily what that word repentance means. It's, it's, it's something that we do cognitively first. It says to have a change of self, heart, and mind, so a change in the inner self that abandons former dispositions and results in a new self, new behavior, and regret over the former behaviors and disposition. That's sort of a two-step process. I think it's worth, like, it's first a change of heart and mind that results in a moral transformation. But it's not a moral transformation alone. Uh, put that next slide up there, uh, Stephen. Sometimes we think, okay, because we, we understand on two levels, the problem in the world is that there's ignorance, right? And, and Paul is certainly talking about ignorance, right? He's talking about how God has, has accommodated ignorance, right? And ignorance leads to sin which is a moral problem. And oftentimes we think of repentance as this simple step of getting to knowledge and then go to transformation, which would be putting behind sin. And I, I do think that is ultimately where repentance gets us. But we don't get there that way immediately. The Pharisees tried to make this quick lateral move, right? They said, we need to repent. We need to be right with God. Israel needs to be right. That means what we're going to do is we're going to change ourselves morally. We're going to obey God's laws. But the problem that Jesus saw with the Pharisees' approach to that kind of repentance is that it didn't actually lead to transformation of the heart. They changed some of their behaviors. They stopped doing some bad things, but actually the knowledge, the, the knowledge of God, a, a relationship with God wasn't established because of that kind of approach to God. And the second uh, slide here, uh, see, what we actually kind of find is that there's sort of a wall that keeps us from making that lateral move. And it actually, I think what repentance is, it's, it's more like, like this, to visualize it a little bit here. Um, what we do is actually we come to God in our ignorance and our sin. We don't know him. We're alien from him. We don't understand who he is, what he's like, and we're sinners because we have a, a mis, an inappropriate view of what's right and what God, who God is and what he, he, he asks of us, right? And so we act from that view that is wrong. And repentance is actually this first thing of coming and having, going from ignorance to knowledge. But that does not immediately, and immediately is the word, that does not always immediately, some people it happens very quickly, but it does not immediately result in all sin going away from my life. 
Because sometimes if, if, if what we're doing is we're going around in the world, we're talking about repentance, and we're just saying, all you need to do is change your behaviors. Well, we're not actually talking to people about what really they need to do. What people need to do is actually consider the fact that God has sent Jesus into the world as someone to know and through whom we can have a relationship with God. And the first step of that is to understand who he is. He is the king, come. He's the one died to take away sin, guilt, what alienates me from God. And then we come into him, into a relationship with him on the basis of grace that is not on the basis of the things that we can do for him. We just come as humble people, taking him up on the offer like he, like he makes here in, uh, in Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me. First, take up my yoke, which is come to me as a person who is worthy of obeying. Know and understand that I am God in the flesh, and I'm going to lead you into rest and peace. And yes, there is a yoke that comes along with that. A yoke is, you know, what connects two oxen, right? And when one of them does something, the other one does something because you can't help but do it because they're connected in some way. What Jesus is saying, come to me. Like, if you are sick of this world of believing everything and it's so unsatisfying and you can't actually find your way to any peace in it, come to me and just say, all right, Jesus, I trust you on the basis of, of faith in you, on the basis that I believe that you are who you say you are. I believe that you are the king who's, who has the authority to forgive sin and who has the authority to adopt me into your family and change my heart over time as I, as I, as I rest in you. On the basis of that trust, I, have a, I go from ignorance to a knowledge of who you are and so I have a relationship with you and that's the first step of repentance and the end of that relationship over time is that the sin gets taken care of because I'm coming to him as one who has authority in my life. But that's the first thing I do. I'm coming to him as a disciple, I'm coming to him as someone who has the right to tell me, hey, it's time to make some changes. I'm coming to him as the person who I know is gentle and lowly of heart, who isn't harsh and rude and unkind. He's the God who has shown mercy over and over again. And so as I come and trust him, I can say, Lord, I know you have my interests in mind. And sometimes like the things that I need to get over and the sin in my life, it like, it, like hurts me and I, and I like to cling on to it, but I'm, gonna just, I'm just gonna trust you with it. I'm gonna trust you to empower me, to put it down. I'm gonna trust you to, to direct my life in such a way that there is transformation. There's this theological word, sanctification going in over time. So that now I can become a person who has repentance and who is, is made new. I now have new knowledge of God. I know who he is because I have a relationship with him. And that relationship with him is transforming me because I learned to trust him. Not because I'm trying to impress him, but because I come to him who is the one who gives rest to my soul. And I believe that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. So we, worship team can come up here. Um, we're coming into the world. And that's what we offer. We come into a pluralistic world that believes that everything is fine and that everything will get you the right place. Everything can lead to rest. And we just come to understand this and we say, look at... I know that sounds wise, and I know that sounds like it could make sense, but I've met this one Jesus, who's God in the flesh, and he's shown me that actually there is a good way to go through life, and it's the way of discipleship. And so I come on the basis of that knowledge of who he's revealed himself to be, and I give him my whole heart, and he's been transforming my life. And so I've been living in this transformative space. I've been living out this repentance that's changing my mind and understanding who he is and what I think is important in my life. And then it's, it's flowing down into my actions, and I'm becoming a different sort of a person. We're not offering up. We're not, we're not selling a religious good or a service to people so that they can like just, yeah, be right with God and then just leave him behind. We're actually inviting people into this transformative understanding that God is everything he says he is and that he's going to change them and that people need to repent. And so when we go around talking about repentance, we have to understand what we're offering them is to know God and then to be transformed, to have this peace that he offers as a result.
That's his free gift. He's so good and gracious to people. And we have to go and give this gift to people to deliver this gift to people in that way, talking about what it is. And yeah, like he's going to judge the world in righteousness. There are consequences. Like it matters. It really matters that we believe in this Jesus. He's going to judge all things one day. And so we need to just like understand is we're going to be people who, who trust Jesus, that it really matters how we live our lives. It actually really matters how we live our lives. We need to be leaning into this process of knowing him for who he is, taking him at his word, and then working this, this thing at, by the power of his spirit, like living into this revealed reality that Jesus is the one the one to whom we can yoke ourselves and trust and who will give us rest for our souls. And it's good to find rest in him. It's good to find peace in him. He's, he's gracious and kind. You know, the, the message of repentance is not, it's not harshness. It's actually mercy. It's mercy for those who are lost and ignorant, who, who, who are trying to trust in all the things and finding that nothing satisfies. The message of repentance is, hey, just, just choose the one thing that's actually going to make a difference. Trust in Jesus. We need to be people who are proclaiming that along with Paul. And I actually think that people, just like they do in this passage, will thank us for it. Not everybody. but Some people will thank us for it. They will trust and they'll believe and they'll have this new life in Jesus. So let's pray. We're going to worship together, and then we're going to go swimming. It's going to be great. Uh, Jesus, thank you. Holy Spirit, I just thank you that you empower and you move among us, Lord, that as we trust in Jesus, as we have this new life uh, in him, you fill us with all of your presence, God. That's, this is the, the paradigm that's so different from the world. We think that the world thinks that somehow we need to just get to God, and so we worship, create things that make us think that God, that we have God, you know. But Lord, you come down. And you just invite us to repent and to trust in you. And you fill us with all that you need, Lord. You lead us into everything that we ever could need, Lord. You are the God who provides for us and cares for us at every step, Lord. Thank you. Lord, I repent, Lord, of all the things that I trust in that are just not steady or sure. God, remind me. Teach me to every day have my mind transformed and renewed into the knowledge that you are everything you say you are, Lord, and let me live accordingly, Lord, for this church, for these people, Lord. I pray for a deep re revelation of your person, Jesus, that we would see that you are worthy of all things, God, and that you would fill us and transform our lives, Lord, and teach us to be people who are proclaiming this good message that you're gracious, God. Lord, we need you. We rely on you every day. Fill us up, I pray, in Jesus' name.